Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Hey everybody! Welcome to Rockbrook uh, today. Uh, so glad that you are here. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for uh, taking time out. Uh, 1015, would you please welcome your church family who's watching online today? Yeah. Hey, hey hello. Uh, we are in this last week, week 11 and the final week of uh, rethinking your life uh, Taking our thoughts, submitting them to God because our thoughts run our life. Our thoughts inform our emotions, our feelings, they inform our actions and uh, we determine our thoughts, then our thoughts determine our life and uh, so thank you for joining us for that today. Next week we're going to start a two-week mini-series called Breaking Through and that series is going to prime the pump and get us ready for our 40-day spiritual growth campaign starting September 19th and 20th and a lot of momentum around that a lot of uh, small group momentum around that we've had so many groups uh, say they're in and a variety of shapes and sizes we got groups on every day of the week uh, so far and uh, we've still got a couple weeks for that to still form and take shape Uh, so way to go on that Um, we've got uh, student small groups that are going to do a really cool thing for this semester for the campaign. They really want to champion the campaign. And uh, student small groups are all going to move to the same night of the week uh, for the fall semester and meet here at church. So they'll be broken up into groups, but they're going to be here. Uh, doors open at 6.30, uh, small groups start at 7, and they'll do some of that together and then uh, some of it in their individual groups. Uh, kind of like how RBFK has Monday night uh, small groups, student small groups are going to uh, meet on Wednesday nights for this semester. I'm so excited for what they've got uh, shaping up there. Uh, you can get a workbook uh, starting this weekend in between the buildings. Uh, this has the small group curriculum, a devotion for each of the 40 days, other resources that will guide you through the whole thing. These are on sale for $5. Uh, if you're watching online, you want to get one of these workbooks. We're selling these uh, outside, so you could just swing by and get one during the weekend service times over the next three weeks if you want, or coordinate with your small group leader uh, to get you a book and uh, may, maybe a friend in small group. Uh, but love for you to pick up one of those as we get ready for that. Okay, but let's, uh, let's grab your outline, open up your iPhone, open up your iPad, open up your eyelids. Let's go to work today on this as we finish this summer series looking at rethinking faith and science, and uh, I'm so excited to tackle in the next 28 minutes, everybody, every objection to faith in God that's erupted over the last 6,000 years. <laughs> if no one laughs, that's, that's a joke. Today's very simple, okay? Today is very, for some of you, I know for some of you, like faith and science, this topic doesn't fire you up. It's a non-issue, but for some of you, Uh, You've got family members or friends or you maybe even say yourself, I can't be a Christian because of science and you see faith and science as two completely opposing positions and you have to pick a side, one side of the fence or the other of what's going to inform your life and what you're going to believe and you see that there's science and then there is belief 
But if you're taking notes, I just want to make an establishing statement today. You've heard me say before, everyone has a belief system. Everyone. If you're an atheist, you've got a belief system. Agnosticism is a belief system. Christianity, of course, is a belief system. So are other religions. So, are the, so is the thing that you made up on your own. Or even if you say that you have a scientific worldview and you're only going to look at facts and data, there is a gap between what you know and how you live. There's a gap between what you know and what you believe. Everyone has some sort of belief system. So it's not like uh, the Christian walks away believing something, the non-Christian walks away not believing. No, they both walk away believing something. It's just a simple establishing statement. There's a story of a nurse who had a strong Christian faith who was told by her medical colleagues uh, that they did not want her bringing her faith into the operating room. And one day she was there and a patient died and one of the doctors who was the presiding physician it was a tragic loss. There was nothing they could do. And he was trying to console his colleagues and the family. And he said, well, at least they're not suffering anymore. And we've heard that so often. But what's interesting is he did not want her bringing her faith into her job. But she's thinking to herself, that is a belief system. Like, how do you know that when his life ended, his suffering ended. How do you know that he's not suffering anymore? And you certainly don't have to be a Christian to believe that life continues after death. Many people who are not uh, religious uh, believe that because of evidence of the patterns of cycles of nature or ethics, psychology, anthropology, uh, philosophy, uh, give us signals to life after death all the time. Einstein who was not a Christian, he believed consciousness continues after death based on the physics as he understood them. Uh, but this idea that you just die and there's no suffering, that's a belief system. And everyone has some kind of belief system. And when it comes to science, and I'm using a very broad term uh, in science, I mean, you can talk about biology, astronomy, uh, physics, and all the social sciences. But when it comes to faith and science, there are some widely held perceptions, misconceptions about Christianity and science that I hear them often and I just want to kind of debunk these today. So again, very simple, just debunk some of these misconceptions and then we'll get to the main points and main questions of the day. But many people believe in this myth that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Uh, but Christians are people and people are all different. Are there some Christians who are anti-intellectual? Some who reject science and logic? I'm sure. Um, they certainly portray that in the media. I mean, have you noticed that it's like every Christian in a sitcom is totally aloof, a fool, unaware of their surroundings, trying to get people to do stuff they don't really want to do. The media often portrays or highlights Christians who have completely ulterior motives, uh, like they're not Christians for genuine reasons. And that's out there. It absolutely is. But when you get under the surface and uh, get beyond those stereotypes, you see that there's a very strong, deep, resonant well of intellectual thought that is thoroughly Christian. Like, here's some things people don't know. The university is a 12th century Christian invention. Higher learning and faith historically have been linked, not uncoupled. 
In fact, if you look at the world where Christianity and the church um, is strong or was strong at one time, you find very helpful science. Like you find eyeglasses, clean water, hospitals, vaccines, so many things. Uh, in terms of America under this idea uh, is Harvard, Princeton, let's go to this, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, uh, all were Christian, founded as Christian institutions. Have we lost this? Let's go to the next slide. It's not there. That's okay. Uh, but they were all, it was their last service, but it's gone. Um, no, it was never there, was it? I've just said it. Oh, okay. Some of the smartest people in human history <laughs> have ended up being people of deep faith. There are also very smart people who have completely rejected faith, okay? It's all over the map. There are intellectual Christians, there are anti-intellectual Christians, because there are intellectual people and anti-intellectual people. There are people in the scientific community of faith and people who reject faith because there are people that are faith-filled and people who reject faith. Christians are people, scientists are people. Uh, but there is a rich tradition of philosophy and scientific discovery in Christianity because Christians engage their mind. Jesus said, oh, let's go back up to this. Christian, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so if you think, well, I can't engage my mind to follow Jesus, that's completely a misconception. Absolutely. Second widely held misconception is that science is objective, faith is subjective. Like, I'm into uh, the objective data and just want to focus on the facts and the evidence. Um, but let's look at, I mean, evolution is a case in point. Evolution is a theory that attempts to explain observable but sometimes unrepeatable data. So a lot of what evolution observes, you can't repeat. Uh, there's a lot of science that's based on repeatable data, like stuff that you put in a lab, experiments you do over and over, but there's other science that you're just basing that on observable data you can't repeat. You can't repeat the Big Bang, you can't go back in time and observe an era, you can't recreate it in a lab, and so uh, there's so much that we're trying to explain based on the observable, like the universe is expanding, but you can't repeat why that is so. And it's trying to explain observable, but sometimes unrepeatable data. And the reality is the data is objective. The explanation is subjective. This is why, hello, scientists disagree. Because some say, well, this happened this way, and others say, well, this happened this way. So this idea that all science is objective, any scientist worth their weight is going to tell you that we're all working off of interpretation. Both science and faith have subjective elements. They aren't so different from one another here. Both have objective elements, both have subjective elements. Third misconception is this, if I believe in science, I can't believe in God. And this happens for so many people. They get into 
a classroom or a place on the internet or a certain book or around a, a group of specific people and think, I can't believe in God here. My faith in God is not valid here. And we think it's science versus faith. Interestingly enough, when you see this V period, like in court cases, Smith versus Jones, the V in the Latin is not pointing to verses, it's actually pointing to and, that it's Smith and Jones. It's science, I'm just saying that to say it's science and faith. There's not some, like, two opposing things. You find often that science leads researchers toward faith as much as it leads them away from faith. And you'll hear people say, well, um, no one in the scientific community believes in God. That's not true. If, if you want to know that that's not true, look at the scientific data that they've done for themselves. Look at what a scientific poll discovered about their own community. The American Association for the Advancement of Science polled their community said 51% of scientists believe in some form of deity or higher power. In the hard sciences like biology and astronomy, it's much higher. It's the social sciences that are bringing that down like psychology and others. Uh, but it's the hard scientists uh, that are looking at life at the molecular level, um, at the very broad level, and saying that there's some form of higher power at play here. 51% say it's a deity or higher power, 31% believe in a personal God, not just a higher power, whatever that means, but a personal God, 7% don't know. It's the minority that reject religion or faith or the idea of God altogether. So if you think, well, I want to study scientists or I am a scientist or I, I want to study this field or whatever, but I can't believe in God, uh, well, half of scientists do. And fact-based science is not perpetually at war with faith-based religion. And maybe it's that science reveals what God did and what God does. It's an amazing story of Alan Rex Sandage, who's um, astronomer and successor to Edwin Hubble, greatest astronomer of the 20th century. And he said, it's my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than, than can be explained by science. So he didn't start out with a Christian conviction. In fact, uh, the deeper he got into astronomy, the deeper he got into the way the universe is created, the more questions it raised within him. And in his 50s, he gave his life to Christ. And he would say science raised so many questions that it led him to faith in Jesus Friend, science should not kill your theological curiosity. Theology means the study of God. And science shouldn't kill your study of God. It should spark it. It should spark it. And the more you know, the more questions you have. Have you found that about really smart people and really wise people? The more they know, the more questions they have. And in the midst of our feelings and our disappointments, we discover that God does have answers. And uh, I'm no different. We all have these times in our life where things aren't going the way they should be. God does not answer prayers the way we wish uh, he would answer them. And we feel lost and we feel confusion about that. But intellectually, when we really think things through, can I ever, in my darkest moment, get to a place where 
I say, maybe there's no God and no one made the world. I can't get there even when I try. Why? Because there are some things that bring me back that you cannot explain without God. And so let's look at some questions that everyone's asking, that smart people are asking. And the first question is, what caused everything that exists? And when you look at, at, think of the origins of the universe, everyone agrees that everything that begins has to have a cause to begin. So your kids did not just spontaneously appear. Uh, You did not come home from shopping and they're sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Where did you come from? You know how that happened. You know how they got here. You know how you got here. And you're like, thanks a lot. Didn't want to think about that. But you know how you got here. You know what happened. If you have a business, you own a business, you know where that came from. You started it. If you have a car, you know that that came from a factory, originally the mind of engineers. Where did the universe come from? Theists say it comes from God. Uh, Others have said the universe created the universe um, or the Big Bang or something else. But how do you explain an infinitely complex universe that began out of nothing? The Bible starts with this statement. In the beginning, it came from God. God created the heavens and the earth and it takes it all the way back to the question of where did the first cell begin? How did any of it begin? This is the question of origin, and your system of belief has to answer origin. And Christianity has an answer for origin, has an answer for how the first cells began, how existence began. And the more we discover, the more it points to a creator. In the first century, the Apostle Paul said this in Romans 1 verse 20, for ever since the world was created, People have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. That it's pointing to, it's pointing everyone to God. So what caused everything that exists? Uh, Number two, what caused all the design? What caused order? Order. This is the evidence from design. That there's a world within a world within a world and it's coded and it works together. The laws explain what we see, but how did the laws get there? Who or what created the laws of physics? Uh, A guy by the name, a scientist by the name of Hugh Ross, is an astrophysicist, and he sat down to work out the scientific probability of the Big Bang happening outside of any supernatural intervention. And what he came to is the probability of the universe coming into being is 10 to the power of 138. In in technical terms, that's a buttload. Like you can't have, I'm not a scientist, sorry, but uh, that's 10 with 138 zeros. Friend, that makes a lottery ticket sound like a surefire investment. Like this is, the uh, the number of atoms in the universe. So think about your body made up of atoms. All our bodies made up of atoms. Everything at the atomic level. They say the universe is only 10 to the power of 70 atoms in the universe. How did that just happen? How does that just happen? 
happen. I think just a very simple illustration of this. Is I look at this book, this 40 Days of Prayer workbook on sale today for $5. <laughs> September 19th and 20th we begin. But this book... Um, the order here to it, that all the pages are the same length and there is design. It's not just particles on a page, but there's design to it and there's letters that make up words, that make up sentences that I can discern and understand and there's obviously a motive behind the book and it points to an author and a publisher. Every book has had an author and a publisher. The universe has an author and a publisher. In fact, they give awards and prizes to great pieces of literature. That's what our worship does to God is ascribe to him his worth. In Psalm 19, one through four, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. How do you explain order? How do you explain design? Creation's voice goes out and the evidence points to an almighty creator, God. Number three, third question, is what caused humanity's desire for morality and meaning? The dignity of humanity. We refer to it as human rights and errant worth. This idea that every person, just by virtue of being a person, has inerrant worth and value, and it can't be trampled upon, shouldn't be violated, this just doesn't make sense without God. I mean, in terms of facts, this is amazing. Every person here believes that every human being, just by virtue of being a human being, has inerrant worth. Everyone believes that. Now, whether or not we always live by it is another question, but we all believe this that humans have worth just by virtue of being human. And we think that, well, that idea has just always been around, but ideas aren't like that. They have to come from somewhere. And there's zero debate, really, regardless of what you believe. Anyone who has a knowledge of history uh, says the idea of human worth and dignity came from the Bible. They've tried to find another source, and it just isn't there. The basis for human dignity, human worth, is that God made you. Genesis 1:27 so God created mankind in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and quite frankly this is why Christianity does reject some science we reject any science that becomes the authority over a human life because God is the only one to rightfully exercise sovereign control over a human life and to attempt to control who lives, who doesn't, when people die, or to do things to place ourselves in God's position. Clearly, man, man is not to do that. We reject that science. And if we view man simply as another creature, not the unique creation that he is, then it's not difficult to see human beings as mere mechanisms that need maintenance and repair, but we're not just a collection of molecules or chemicals. God teaches us through his word that God created each of us and has a specific plan and purpose for each of us. 
And what's amazing is deep down, we all know that and live by it. I mean, we don't always live by it, but we know it. I mean, Romans 2, 14 through 16 says, even Gentiles, so even outsiders who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life, judge how they responded to the law written on their hearts. Let's put it this way. We would all agree that it's wrong to be dishonest. Why did we all come to that conclusion? Uh, Because we came to the conclusion because our creator is truth. He's honest. God is honest. So when we are dishonest, it's wrong. God is faithful. So when we are unfaithful, it's wrong. God is just. When we are unjust, it's wrong. God is love. So when we are unloving, it's wrong. When we are different from the character of the creator who made us, it's wrong. When we are like the character of the creator who made us, it's right. That's how you decide what truth is. That's how right and wrong are decided. And, and these are explanations to how we have morals. The moral argument, I, I, I believe, is the greatest. I can't get past it. How did we all come to these conclusions of morality? And the idea that morals just evolved can't be. And as you study it, you find God created them. And you have an errant worth because you were created in the image of God. That's why Christianity, at its core, is not only about believing something, it's about knowing someone. It's why the Bible, the Bible, while it's scientifically accurate, it's not a science book. And it's not going to walk you through the science of all the house. It's going to show you how the world was created and all these different hows, but it's not a science book. Why? Because it's far more interested in who and why rather than how. Because, hello, we could have all the hows and know, and know everything there is to know, but where does that leave us? It still leaves us with who and why. It still leaves us with the deepest questions of significance and purpose and design and a relationship with a creator. And that's why the Bible clears us, clearly tells us who. In Colossians 1, it says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see And the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme, over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, 
And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And he's made peace with you through Christ's blood on the cross. So here's my final question today, is how will I respond to Jesus Christ? If Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, if he's done all these things and he's extending his hand to me, how will I respond? And scripture's full of responses to Jesus. One in the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 20, this is after Jesus has uh, resurrected from the dead. He's been crucified on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And it says one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. So he was not, the other disciples have seen him. Uh, Thomas was not with them. I don't know if it's because he didn't believe or, or why. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. So he has eyewitness accounts from his, his friends, from the other disciples that they have seen Jesus. But he replied, well, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. So guys, your story's not enough. I've got to see him and put my finger through the hole. And, and I've, got to, I've got to examine this. Eight days later, so he's lived with this for eight days. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. This time, Thomas is with them. The doors were locked to where they were. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he, he said to Thomas, how did he know Thomas had said this, wanted this? He turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here, and look at my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side, don't be faithless any longer, believe, believe. Again, how, how did he know Thomas is wrestling with this like this? He goes on, my Lord, my God, Thomas exclaimed, one of the most amazing exclamations and confessions in scripture. In fact, Nathaniel said this confession, my Lord and my God, when Jesus began his public ministry, Nathaniel doubted it, Jesus proved it to him, Nathaniel fell, said my Lord, my God, Thomas is doing that now. And Jesus told him, you, you believe because you have seen me. So there's no record here that Thomas actually came to the point where he puts his finger through the hole and puts his hand into the side. He sees Jesus and believes. You believe because you've seen me. Check this out. Blessed are those, you, who believe without seeing me. That there is a special blessing on those who believe without seeing Jesus. How amazing that the problem here. The problem for Thomas was not the evidence. He had eyewitness accounts. There is evidence before. The problem was not the evidence. The problem is never the evidence. The problem to faith in God is never the evidence. It's the human heart. It's the human heart. We're all dealing with the same objective data. It's what we believe. It's our heart. And there is a special blessing on those who believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 30 says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. 
But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. That this is written that you might believe that he is the one who died because of your sins, that he rose from the dead. And when you believe in him, when you give him your life, you are alive, you are born again, and you have life forevermore with Jesus Christ. Life after death is sweet and wonderful as you are with Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful that you always tell the truth. You don't lie to us. Uh, You tell us just exactly as it is, and you have put eternity in our hearts. You've put your law in our hearts. God, we thank you for creation, the voice going out into all the earth, pointing to the glory of God, our creator. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for Thomas and his faith. That after his confession, my Lord, my God, he took seriously the commands to go into all the world, the Great Commission. God, we thank you for the reliability of your word, of your resurrection. If you've never opened your life to Jesus, just invite him to invade your life right now. Say, Jesus Christ, come into my life right now. I invite you to make yourself real to me. I want to learn to love you and trust you. I'm going to walk away today believing in something. I'm going to walk away today choosing something. And I choose to believe in you. I choose to worship you. The way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.